For 1,400 years, Israel had been celebrating the annual holiday called Passover. It had its origin in the book of Exodus, where we read that the people of Israel had lived in Egypt for 400 years previously. They were servants there. And as time went on, their servitude began to be harder and harder. The latter end of that time, they were living under extremely harsh conditions as slaves. And after that 400-year period had come, God chose to powerfully free them and form them into a nation and give them a land of their own. But the freedom that they were going to have, that they were going to live in, was going to have to come about by means of judgment. Moses, God's messenger, had told Pharaoh about God's decision. And when Pharaoh heard God's decision that these people, the workforce in Egypt, was supposed to be freed and let go, Pharaoh refused to let these people go. And so because of Moses' refusal to let God's people go in freedom, God sent plagues as an act of judgment against Pharaoh and Egypt. The last plague involved a death angel. And this death angel came and would pass over Egypt and kill the firstborn in every household that did not apply the blood of the lamb to their doorposts. Those who did apply the blood of the lamb, that evening they ate the lamb with bitter herbs and unleavened bread. The bread was without leaven. It was without yeast that night because their departure could happen in haste. It could happen quickly. So make the dough. Don't bother sprinkling yeast on it because that takes time to permeate. Bake the dough. Bake the bread eat it, and be ready to go when God sends you on your path of freedom. So that night, there was a lamb, and there was unleavened bread. God sent his death angel, and many Egyptians, because they didn't trust, because they didn't believe, they did not apply the blood of the lamb to their doorposts. And when the death angel came, the firstborn in their houses were put to death, including Pharaoh's house, and consequently they were receiving God's judgment. Now we read about this in the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 12, verses 29 to 32 says this, At midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. This is how God redeemed Israel from their slavery. This is how he brought them out from underneath the oppression and gave them freedom. It was called the night of the Passover, where the death angel passed over all of Egypt 
and in particular passed over the houses that had the blood applied to the doorposts. That happened in Exodus. For the next 1400 plus years, the Jews had been celebrating that event. It was called the Passover meal and the feast of unleavened bread. They went together. It was a way of remembering God's redemption. It wasn't just a holiday to enjoy some food and unleavened bread. It was a holiday and a feast that caused them to hold on to hope. They had hope in God because of how they had seen him powerfully act for their forefathers. And they had hope in God because they were expecting that a powerful freedom, a powerful redemption would come once again. A redemption that would form them into a nation that would welcome the Christ, the Messiah into their midst and they would be free from their Roman oppression. That's what's happening in Mark chapter 14. It's the night of the Passover meal. It's the last evening that Jesus would be alive before he goes to the cross. Now, there are three points as we work through the sermon this morning. I'll give them to you now, and I'll give them to you as we go through the sermon. The first point is Jesus' control. The second point is Jesus' commitment. And the third point is Jesus' covenant. Jesus' control, Jesus' commitment, and Jesus' covenant. And it's my hope that as we're going through each of those three points, that we will respond. What would be the response? It's my hope that as we see Jesus' control, there will be trust in our heart. As we see his commitment, that there will be thankfulness. And as we see his covenant, that we will remember what Jesus has done. I'll give those to you as well as we go through the sermon. So point number one, Jesus' control. We know from the context here in Mark chapter 14 that it's a time where the Feast of Unleavened Bread is taking place. Passover lamb is going to be part of the meal. And in verse 12, the disciples ask Jesus about where they are going to celebrate this important holiday together, this important Passover meal. So Jesus tells two disciples, and we know who these two disciples are from Luke's account. It's Peter and John. He tells them what to do. He says, go into a city and find a man who's carrying a jar. And at first glance, you might think, well, that sounds kind of unusual because there might be a lot of people carrying jars. Well, custom was that the women were the ones who went and retrieved the water, if you will. And they were the ones who typically carried jars in the city. So to actually see a man carrying a jar of water would be an unusual sight, and he would stand out. So Jesus tells them, look for that man carrying the jar. And then they're to follow that man to a house. And when they get to the house, they're supposed to talk to the master of that house with a message. And verse 14 tells us the message. Go to the master of the house and say, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. Jesus continues giving them instructions by assuring them that the master will then show these two disciples an upper room and that there they are supposed to prepare the meal for the disciples at that place. Now for someone who's not familiar with Jesus, this is an unusual mission. 
with unusual details to go into a city, find a stranger, follow the stranger, talk to that stranger's master, ask him about this upper room, and so forth. And yet in verse 16, it says that the disciples went and they found it, how? Just as he had told them, and there they prepared the Passover. Now at this point, our minds are tempted to go in all kinds of different directions. Did Jesus know the master of this house from some other place? Had this man met Jesus, perhaps in his northern ministry, and shared um, this opportunity or invitation with Jesus to come anytime he's in town, I'll reserve this upper room? Had this man deeply appreciated Jesus and, and just wanted to reach out to him? Or was this some kind of exercise in Jesus' divine attribute of omniscience? Similar to how when he knew that the woman touched the hem of his garment. Similar to how he sent his disciples ahead in chapter 11 where he was, they were supposed to prepare the way for him coming into Jerusalem. Go and get this donkey that you will find. What's going on? That's where our minds go with this. But Mark's point is not for us to get lost in that. Mark's point is found in verse 16 with this opening section here. The disciples set out, and what does Mark want us to know? Mark wants us to know that everything that he had spoken turned out just as he had told them. It's a display of Jesus being in absolute control over the events that are taking place in his life. Now, Jesus' control has been on display over and over again throughout his ministry, throughout the gospel of Mark. We know that Jesus is in control of his ministry. Jesus is in control all the way to Jerusalem, all the way up to his death. He was in absolute control when he approached people who had demons. The demons were asking him, what have you to do with us, son of the most high God? Because of his control. He was in absolute control when he went out onto the sea of Galilee and those winds and that storm had whipped up and Jesus just spoke to the winds, spoke to the storm and said, peace, be still. And he showed his control there. Blind Bartimaeus comes up to him and asks for him to be, for Jesus to heal him. And Jesus asks, bring him to me. I'm in control. He heals a blind man. He was in absolute control when he told his disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. This is where, what is going to happen. I'm not going to be a victim of circumstances. This is my plan. I'm in absolute control. And so the whole book of Mark has these episodes that are littered throughout where we can see that Jesus is in control of his, if you will, destiny. And this is another episode where he is arranging all of the details that need to take place for him to go to the cross. That's why Jesus could tell him, go into the city, find a man, follow him. He'll take you to an upper room. It's because he is in absolute control. What Jesus says, folks, will happen. When he says it will happen, it will happen. And there are two bookends sort of in the Bible that help us see the control of God. Number one is creation. And then number two is judgment. I think about creation. Things are 
under the absolute control of Jesus' words. Psalm 33, verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Everything up in the stars, up in the sky, the stars. Think about the universe that they say is expanding. And I just can't get my mind around that. The billions of stars. And look, and by the breath of his mouth, all of their host. Who's in control of this comet or thing that's whipping by the earth every how many thousands of years? This is all Jesus because it's under his control. Not only is Jesus under control of all creation that has happened at the beginning, but the Bible shows us that he's in control of everything that happens at the end. Matthew chapter 25, verses 34 to 41. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. This is just by Jesus' words. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Who is the one in control? It's Jesus. And what should be our response then to Jesus? As the disciples were told, go into the city and do such and such, they responded and went And they found it just as he had told them. And folks, everything is happening in life just as God has spoken it to happen in life. One of the encouragements for us coming through this opening portion here is to know that Jesus is in control of all of the events leading up to his death. Again, he's not a victim. He is not a martyr. He is in control. And for those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, we know that Jesus is in absolute control over all of the details that are happening in our lives as well. Nothing is an accident that happens in our lives. The challenges that you face, the places where you're put, the relationships that you're in, they can be filled with all kinds of ups and downs. But we look at Jesus here And we say, he is the one whom we're following. We know that all is happening under his control. And so we respond to that and say, okay, wherever I'm at this week, whatever's going on in life, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to place my trust in you. Let's look at Jesus' commitment, verses 17 to 21. Jesus' commitment, verses 17 and 18. They've made it into the upper room. The Passover meal has been prepared. And at the Passover meal for the Jewish families, there would be somebody who was presiding over the meal, the head of the home. And this meal was a meal that came with multiple phases to it, if you will. If you ever went to one of those places like the melting pot, (laughs) I've been there once, romantic date for my wife. (laughs) And, And they come with these courses and... They come and here's course one with a little flame underneath and and then they leave you alone for a while. And then there's a next phase where they come with the next course and the Passover meal is not the melting pot, but if you will, there are multiple phases that are happening here in the meal. That's the way that it was celebrated. And there would be somebody who presided over the different phases of the meal. So the head of the home and in this case, it would have been Jesus. So imagine yourself in this upper room that evening. 
Your senses are soaking up everything. Your sight can see the platters of food, the lamb that's been roasted, the bread that's on the table. You can smell the aroma in the room, just like when you went home to your grandma's house and you could smell the roast in the oven. Above all, the meal starts and you're beginning to taste the different elements that are on the table. And all of this was meant to point their attention to God. Each part of the meal was pointing them back to what God had done in the past. So Jesus is leading the meal. And he makes a statement in verse 18 that freezes the atmosphere. The momentum was moving forward and all of a sudden, if you're in the room, something happens that doesn't ordinarily happen. He's going through the meal and in verse 18, he says, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Now, what would this have been like? Think about our Christmas services. You anticipate the Christmas service, maybe for a few weeks in advance. You're excited about that particular service. You come and there's different sights. There's trees that are lit up and people are wearing reds and greens and maybe the lights are dimmed. You come into the room, this auditorium, and it just feels different because it's a Christmas service. And then we start into the service itself, and it has different phases. So we start reading the scripture about Jesus' coming, and our minds are taken back to that. And then we have some Christmas songs about Jesus' arrival, and our minds are taken back to that. And then there's more scripture reading where we go back to Luke chapter 2, and our minds are constantly going back to what God has done for us in sending Jesus into the world. And then... At the end of one of the songs, I stand up here with a microphone and you're expecting me to lead into the next phase of the service. And I just say, tonight, one of you is going to betray me. All of a sudden, the momentum of the evening stops. The thoughts of where we are expecting to go, there's confusion in the room. And that's what's happening at this meal. This statement is a startling statement to the disciples. And we know because they respond and they start asking the question in distress. Is it I? Surely not me. And Jesus presses in a little bit further. So the elements of remembering from the Exodus now have been placed off to the side. And he is turning the focus to himself. Jesus presses in further and says, it's one of the 12, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. There would have been a dish there full of paste where it would have been passed around and you would have taken your piece of bread, dipped it in there, and then enjoyed the bread. Everybody had had their piece of bread or would have their piece of bread in the bowl. So it's one of the 12. Now for Jesus, think about Jesus' perspective now. He's in control of all events. This is not a surprise that one will betray him this evening. It's not a surprise because he knows his Old Testament scriptures. Psalm 41 verse 9. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. This is the fulfillment that is taking place this evening. 
But notice what Jesus says next. In spite of the betrayal, Jesus says, for the Son of Man, notice, goes as it is written of him. So Jesus, knowing that he would be betrayed, responds and says, but I'm going forward with everything that's going to take place tonight. I'm not going to try to avoid it. This is the plan. And he's committed to it. He's going to go along with it. Now, notice what Jesus calls himself. He calls himself the Son of Man. That's a title that we've seen back in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, that talks about a king-like figure who's going to receive dominion, going to receive the nations. And yet, he's using it in a way that sounds as though he's going to be defeated. So how is this son of man, who's supposed to receive the nations, have a kingdom, how is he going to go through defeat? Well, we know that Jesus is not carrying out just one role in this Passion Week. We know that also throughout the Old Testament scriptures, he takes on the role of the suffering servant. In Isaiah chapter 53, we see this. Isaiah 53, verses 3 and following, it says that he was despised and he was rejected by man. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. So here's Jesus, the son of man, who will receive victory. He will receive the kingdom, but he first must live out his commitment as the suffering servant as it has been written. As it is the will of the Father from Isaiah 53, this is Jesus' commitment first and foremost. So see Jesus as the Son of Man, the King, who is willing to lay down his life, be afflicted. And you ask yourself the question, why is that good? Why is this good news? Why would Jesus go through with this? It's because he is carrying out the will of the Father. And the will of the Father is to bring salvation to his people. Just as the lamb had to be slaughtered in order to protect his people in Egypt, the son has to be slaughtered in order to protect his children from the just wrath that they deserve. When you and I take an honest look at ourselves, when we, when we see ourselves in the mirror of morality, if you will, we see the condition of our hearts. We see areas of our life that are messy with sin. We see areas where we can look back and say, there's not holiness there. There's a struggle with sin. There's, there's transgressions against God. I can look at my past and I can see in that mirror there that there is a heap of just offenses against God. We're sinners. And the sins of the hearts or the sins of the mouth or the sins that have been committed in action are actually now deserving of God's judgment. And so left to ourselves, we would be living out verse 21, 
Look at verse 21 says, For the Son of Man goes, it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Is there a time when we've given up on Jesus for sin? And the answer is yes. And what are we deserving of? We're deserving of eternal judgment. But Jesus here is saying he's going to go as it has been written. So in the garden, he would go and he would grieve. He would say, not my will, but yours be done, Father. He would be despised. He would be smitten. He would be afflicted. He would go as it was written. This is Jesus's commitment to do the will of the Father in order to bring about salvation for us. And again, what should be our response? If the control of Jesus is that we will trust him with our lives, the commitment for Jesus to go to the cross on our behalf would be, we should be thankful for him. Here's the lamb who offers his life so that the justice of God, the wrath of God that we deserve is now deflected from us and going to him. So brothers and sisters, we're here today as Christians because Jesus has absorbed the wrath of God that we deserve. And out of that, there ought to be a humble thanks On a day like today, we purposefully remember Jesus' obedience. If he wasn't committed in being the lamb who would die, we would be the ones who rightly die for eternity. Young person, you might imagine yourself being more thankful and more happy in life if you were more athletic I would just be a more thankful person if I was better at this sport or if I was smarter and just got better grades and and school was easier, I would be more of a thankful person. If I was more well-liked, I could see myself having a more thankful disposition towards people. Christian man, Christian woman, you might imagine yourself being more happy and thankful if you had a marriage or a better marriage, or if you had a job that was a little more prestigious, I would just be more of a thankful person. Thanksgiving would be overflowing in my life if the circumstances in my life were just better. Whether you're young or whether you're old, I want you to know that we have something far better as Christians, far better than circumstances, folks. And that is that Jesus went, Jesus was committed to you and committed to the Father. And so he went willingly in order to provide salvation for you. And out of that, we can say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, because my sin deserves eternal judgment from God. Thank you for bearing that judgment in my place. There's that old song, don't worry, be happy. There you go. It's the old song, so all the old people remember it. So if you said happy, you're an old person. (laughs) Don't worry, be happy. And we could say, yes, don't worry. Don't pout. Don't envy. Don't hate. Don't be a grump. 
Be thankful. Why? Is it because... No. It's because of what Jesus has done. We're thankful today because of Jesus' commitment to go to the cross. Now, if you're a non-Christian here this morning, the best thing that you can be thankful for are your circumstances or the people in your life. And yet there is something far greater in Jesus that God offers to you. The Father offers this as a gift to you. That your sins can be placed on Jesus. All of the sins that you have committed in the past, he gives you the gift of Jesus where your sins can be placed upon Jesus. So the Bible says that he became sin for us who knew no sin. For what reason? So that we might become the righteousness of God. So we receive his righteousness. And so we come to Jesus as people knowing that we've sinned and confessing our sins to him. And in faith, we receive him as our savior. That's the perfect gift. And here the son, Jesus says, I'm going to go to the cross as it is written. He was committed to go. It was the plan of the father on our behalf. That's Jesus's commitment. Third and finally, It's Jesus' covenant in verses 22 and following. It says, as they were eating, he took the bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them. And he said, take, this is my body. So in this meal, the Passover meal had different phases. It grew in its length after the Exodus 12, the original Passover. There were more celebrations and more memories to look back to on what God had done. And part of this meal was a portion where bread would be passed around. Folks would tear a piece off the bread and they would wait until all had received the bread. And then the one who was presiding over the meal would say something like this, praise be thou, O Lord, sovereign of the world, who causes bread to come forth from the earth. And then everyone around the table would have responded by saying, Amen. And then the presider over the meal would recount Israel's wanderings in the wilderness. This bread reminds us of the bread of our afflictions, which our fathers ate in the wilderness. That would have been somewhat of the normal routine. But what Jesus does, again, is something completely different. He's breaking from the Passover structure And he interrupts the tradition of the meal and says something the disciples had never heard before. The bread's being passed around and he says, take, this is my body. And then the text moves quickly to the next phase of the meal. We're not even heard, we're not even seeing what what really, really happens there with their reaction, but he moves to the cup. And in this meal with different phases, there would have been four different cups or four times when they would have drank from the cup. And it's believed that they would have drank from the cup four times to remember the four promises that God had made to them back in Exodus 6. Exodus 6, cup number one. I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So that would have been the first cup in the meal. The second cup. And I will deliver you from the slavery to them. Third cup. 
And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with the great acts of judgment. Those were the plagues. And then the fourth cup. And I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. That was happening throughout the meal. And it's believed that Jesus is on cup number three. The bread has been passed. It's in their hands. And now the cup is in front of them. And it says that Jesus gave thanks. That's the term for Eucharist. We don't have to be kind of concerned about that term. That just means being thankful. He gave it to them and they all drank. And then here's what Jesus says. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. All of this was a moving away from the normal tradition of Passover. Why? Because Jesus was instituting a new covenant moving forward with his people. And it was catching them by surprise. The bread is now meant to point to the body of Jesus. The wine is meant to point to the blood of Jesus. Now some have asked the question, especially our Catholic friends, does this mean that the physical body and the blood of Jesus are actually present today in those little symbols there? When I receive it, does it actually turn into the body and the blood of Christ? The answer is no. The Jews never would have thought about eating actual flesh, especially that of somebody in front of them. When cannibalism or the eating of flesh is mentioned in the Old Testament, it's only mentioned in terms that are negative, of judgmental terms. Like, your life is going to get so harsh under this judgment that you're going to have to turn and eat other people. That's how it's mentioned in the Old Testament. And then, for blood, we know that God had regulations, even with the blood of animals. The blood was supposed to be drained out of them before the meat was eaten. So to think about this being received as literally the flesh in a physical way and, and the blood in a physical way, this would have been revolting. And, and then there's no response to this, nor is there any explanation later on which would have been needed if it actually was the body and the blood of Jesus. So what were they meant to understand? Three truths. Number one, here is a covenant when God entered into a new covenant or an agreement, there was a sacrifice that would happen. The sacrifice was a means of ratifying the covenant, finalizing it, that brought two parties together. So here's a new relationship that is going to take place between God and his people. To mark this as a very highly important agreement, we're going to slaughter an animal. And Jesus says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. This is him who's dying so that this covenant can be arranged. And we've known about this covenant from the Old Testament scriptures. We knew that this covenant was going to be arriving. Jeremiah chapter 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. It's not going to be like that covenant back in Exodus. The covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. 
and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Now, you just see the length of that, and you know that we could talk about that for a while. But what I want you to see is that this is the covenant that Jesus has in mind. It's a covenant in which he is bringing God's people into a new relationship with the Father. A relationship where God and his people are going to be together. A relationship in which sin will be remembered no more. In which iniquity will be forgiven. So here is the covenant. Secondly, it's a covenant that would begin with Jesus' body. An animal had to be sacrificed. Blood had to be shed. And this is going to be the sacrifice. Jesus going to the cross. The covenant will be ratified. It will happen on that account that Jesus will die, that blood will be shed, and a new relationship will take place because of the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus himself. And then thirdly, who will come into this covenant? You'll notice that Jesus says, it's for many His blood will be poured out for many. So on the night of the first Passover, thousands of lambs were sacrificed in order to protect many from the death angel, many from the judgment of God. And here is Jesus' life offered up. And it is sufficient for the many, the millions and millions who would come to Jesus as the one who offers his life, his life of perfect obedience for those who will receive him by faith. And then Jesus makes that statement that he will not drink of the cup until that day when he drinks it new in the kingdom of God. What's that all about? In ancient times, people would make a promise and they say, I'm not going to eat or drink until I do such and such. And you might remember the promise that some enemies of Paul made in Acts 23. They said, I'm not going to eat or drink until Paul has been killed. Well, here is Jesus saying, I am not going to eat or drink the fruit of this vine until I do it new in the kingdom of God. Meaning this, he's going to bring us back together. He's going to bring us back together for a final meal, for a final feast. And here we are looking at Jesus' covenant. What is needed in a covenant? What's needed is that the people in the covenant remember. Sometimes I have to remind myself, remind myself, Nate, this is who you are to be in the covenant that you've made with Chris. This is whom you're supposed to love. This is how you're supposed to be following the Lord in this covenant. And I'm supposed to recall her to mind as Not something that's passive, that that just kind of gets my attention. But this is the one whom I've been brought into a relationship with. I'm to remember her in a proactive way. Any kind of covenant that you enter into, you remember the other party. And so here we are entering into a covenant with God. And the right response for us is to remember. To remember what Jesus has done for us. To remember who God is as our father, 
to remember who Jesus is as our Savior. And so 1 Corinthians 11 says that when we come to this table, we remember the covenant. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. So, let me encourage you. Jesus is in control of all things. Jesus has made a commitment to the Father on your behalf. Jesus has made it possible for us to enter into a covenant with the Father. There's no imperatives in this section here. But we come through this and we ought to be people who are marked by trust. We trust that Jesus is in control. We're thankful for his ongoing commitment. And we are people who are going to remember this is what God did for us. He's passing over us. He's taking his judgment and passing over us because the lamb has been slaughtered, Christ himself, so that we can be his children. Entering into a relationship that will go into the kingdom. Let's remember Jesus today. Let's pray.